And so I personally think that the 45 degree ranges are the most underutilized ranges Hmm. because people traditionally just do the split squat and do the lateral lunge, but they don't understand the 45. They just think it's a lunge matrix or a clock type exercise. You know what I mean? That was Alex Effer, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyo Mat. The Plyo Mat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyomat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to welcome back guest Alex Effort to the podcast. Alex is the owner of Resilient Training. He has extensive experience and knowledge in the realms of strength and conditioning, rehabilitation, biomechanics, exercise selection, and anything to do with the realm of human movement. I've learned so much from Alex through taking his educational mentorship. He's been a frequent resource of mine with biomechanical questions and understanding the structure of the body. And for the show today, we're going to be talking a lot about force production and exercise selection in light of alignment. And the two archetypes we'll be going into are athletes who are more externally rotated, so think bow-legged, and more internally rotated, so think knock-kneed. And just with those two archetypes, one of the things that you'll hear is, well, a bow-legged athlete is a good accelerator, but a more neutral or internally rotated individual could catch them in a longer sprint. And so just with that in mind, from a performance perspective, Alex is going to be going very deep into these two archetypes and how they use their base of support to really give us a better understanding of exercise selection. What does it mean for different athletes for lunge patterns, lateral lunge patterns, a narrow or wide stance in a squat? This episode gives us a broader scope uh, or a broader lens by which to understand how athletes move, the ranges and bases of support that they ideally move with, and how they produce force in those ranges. And then, of course, connecting it all to training movements and exercises. Alex is a huge source of knowledge. Get out your notepad for this episode. It is information dense and excited to get to the show here. So let's get to episode 381 with Alex Zephyr. Alex, it's good to have you back, man. So I remember back, this was like a year ago, I think it was, it was Casey Jones, uh, his handle is funny strong. And there was like this Instagram story or something. And it was like all these Marvel superheroes. And for some reason you were Thanos, like the the only bad guy or whatever, like in the whole group. And I was curious, I was curious why, why did you end up being the the villain (laughs) in that whole group of all the, it was all biomechanical type, you know, people, movement, biomechanical people were all the other heroes and you were the villain. So. Just curious. Well, that's why. what I said to him. Like, why am I Thanos? Why am I the ultimate villain? And in the, and how he had it was that there's the gauntlet. And then there are people in my vault membership, which is the thing after that people go into after Evolve. And 
There's a bunch of people like Kyle Wall was there, a guy named Lewis Robinson, and a few other people. And they were all Infinity Stones. And because I ran Vault, I guess, I was Thanos who collected all the stones. <laughs> and he also said that was like the ultimate boss because he took a bunch of courses and he said that, you know, my course really helped put things together. And so, um, yeah, so he, he, he put me as Thanos and I, I died when I saw it. it was so funny, but, uh, yeah. And sometimes he does still put it on. Like, <laughs> it, it still surfaces. He's done it a couple of times time. because I've, I've told him that I thought it was funny. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the story behind that. But I, I, I laughed really hard when I saw that. Yeah. I was wondering if maybe there's like some similarities in the jawline or something like that too, or some visual. That's what it is. When I get angry, I guess <laughs> I start to turn purple and, uh, I've got the beard too. So maybe that's it. I think it is. Yeah. I can't, I really, it is funny because I, I, in getting ready for this, uh, getting the questions ready for this, I just, you know, that was like the first thing that popped in my head. I got an interview kind of with, with Thanos here and the. I can't believe you remember that. Yeah. That's so funny. It, it yeah. will always, it will always, yeah, be a memory for me i saved it on my phone i i, I screen recorded it because it was so funny and i sent it to all my friends i'm like you guys gotta check out this story and they were all dying and, and they thought that it was because of the beard and the wide jaw that's yeah, what they said yeah that yeah that is i do think that is a close link for me so yeah yeah the, the boss <laughs> battle so this will be the yeah this will be our our first question of the boss battle here the um that's it so I, I, one of the things I wanted to get into uh, today as a theme was like force production. And I know one of the things that uh, it's kind of funny, you know, we talk about producing force and I think a lot of times that just gets taken down to just something on the muscular level, like, yeah. and you have to be taught how to do it, which there is, of course, muscular coordination and learning to recruit motor units and all those important things. But I think what we don't think about is like joint position and uh, rotational factors. And one of the things I remember very clearly from the mentorship or going through your mentorship was external rotation or i mean it's not the same thing necessarily but a lot like just for generalizing more bow-leggedness appearance just mm -hmm. to just to paint a picture and then more internal rotation or knees coming together and what that meant for force production and mm -hmm. so I, I just if you could take us through uh what does it mean if someone is more externally rotated more bow-legged or they're more coming together more valgus what does that mean for how they will produce force when they move what are their tendencies going to look like yeah so a lot of the times when we look at the knees we're looking at uh we have to consider someone's base of support and so if you were to stand up with your feet hip width apart and you draw and then you drew a box around the outside of your feet and your toes so the outside of your feet are the side of the box your toes are the top and then your heels are the bottom that's your base support and within that base support is where you are able to internally rotate and produce force into the ground to be able to propel you forward. So everything outside of the box is going to be more your external rotation. That's the space you're going to move into or move towards. When people have bow legs, to me, what that tells me is that the box is not a box anymore or it's not a square. It's more of a rectangle going side to side. So they don't have the space in front of them. They don't have the space behind them. So they don't have the ability to flex their hip, which is the space in front of them. They don't have the ability to push off, which is the space behind them. So what they do is they bring their, or they, they, they push their knees out. They, they turn their sockets outwards, like their hip sockets, their shoulder sockets, so that they're working more in this frontal plane. So every time they take a step, their hip hikes up their shoulder hikes up, 
their arm goes out to the side, their leg AB ducks. It's almost like they're, they're, they're skating as they're walking because they don't have the space in mm. front of them. <clears throat> so these are people who don't have internal rotation, don't have external rotation. So they push their knees out to the side because when you start to compress the front and the back of the hip, the socket starts to turn outwards and down to the ground. So more into this retro version where these people now only have access to that lateral frontal plane. Okay. The other thing to consider is that, and what I get people to do is sometimes you'll see valgus in just one leg. So let's just say it's the right leg. That's telling me that there's so much weight going on the right leg. They don't have the ability to put force into the ground. So they start to bow their knee out so they don't roll on the outside of their ankle. And what I found with those people is if I just get them to walk that right foot out just a little bit at a time, I will get them to walk out to the point that I see that their knee appears to be straight. It's not bowing anymore. And then in that mm-hmm. position, that is their comfort zone because that is where their box is. If I can bring their foot out to the side so now their knee is lined up, they then have the ability to produce the internal rotation. So that will then reduce tension in their hip. So to me, somebody who has various bow-legged knees, those are people who are running out of room. So they shift their base support out to the side and in turn where they can produce force and internal rotation out to the side so that when we bring the leg out, they then have the capacity to produce internal rotation. Somebody who has more valgus, on the other hand, <clears throat> they have a very narrow. So instead of them having a rectangle going out to the side, they've got this front to back rectangle. They don't have any space beside them, but they have space in front of them. So they're able to flex their hip, but they don't have a lot of internal rotation ability. So what they will do now is they will shove their pelvis forward towards the front of that rectangle, towards their toes, to be able to produce force. And usually it comes from their back. And when that pelvis goes forward, their knees start to cave in because Mm -hmm. they won't be able to internally rotate their hips. So they're going to try to internally rotate their back, which is spinal extension, or try to internally rotate their knees, which is knee hyperextension. Right. And so when they then do that, they will then pronate their feet or they'll try to turn their feet out to the side because that's what's going to happen as the pelvis starts to go forward. So if you squeeze your glutes really tight, it pushes your center of gravity forward. And then that's going to allow them to put force into the ground because if I can't do it at my hips, I'm going to do it somewhere else. And most of the time it's related to our center of gravity, or center of mass going forward. Because internal rotation is just putting force into the ground. And I can do that by creating joint motions, which then are associated to certain muscle contractions. Or I can do it by shoving everything towards my toes so that every step is like I'm propelling off of my toes like a calf raise. It's not very efficient, but it's still accomplishes the same task because gait and and if you consider running as part of gait the umbrella of gait 
Gait is just a forward progression of our center of mass. And so I can do it by jamming joints together and shoving the whole center of gravity forward through arching my back and or hyperextending my knees, or I can do it through um, joint ranges of motion, which allows me to put force into the ground within my base of support. To give you another example, let's just say you have somebody who has a hiked up hip or a really dropped shoulder on the right side, let's say. Well, let's say I turn the pelvis to the left. Sorry, turn turn the pelvis to the right. So everything's turning to the right. If I keep on turning, you'll feel that your, you're gonna, your weight's going to go on the outside of the foot. So your, your foot's going to roll out to the side. In order for me to not roll my ankle or fall over, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lift up. I'm going to hike the hip up. And when you hike the hip up, you can feel your weight go on the inside of your foot. So this is a way that I can use my back as a, to, to create the internal rotation in a fake way so that I'm not falling outside of my base of support. Right? So that's why we see some of those compensations. Yeah. With, with athletes who, and to tie this into something that's very familiar, like sprinting, running, accelerating, uh, bow-legged athletes typically are pretty good accelerators, but once they get up to speed, like a top end speed, they can get uh, caught by the person who's, let's just say, more neutral or even a little mm -hmm. internally rotated. And mm -hmm. yeah, as you're describing a bow-legged, and I guess there's different types of bow-legged as well. Like there is, like you said, if someone's like a cowboy and their feet yeah. are maybe close together and their knees are way out, that's not functionally very good. Usually, no. the athletes you see who are a little or more athletic have a wider base of support. But it it makes sense for what you said. Like the bow-legged person has more lateral ability. They, mm -hmm. but in acceleration, you don't need to exhibit quite the amount of hip extension as upright running because you're a little bit more forward leaning. So you don't have to get there yet. But once mm -hmm. you get up and running, you have more 3D motion happening in all planes, and it makes sense that. That person who's a little more neutral and has more movement options and can get their sprint wheel going a little better is going to catch you. And so, yeah. uh, my question for you is: Let's just say someone who is well, first being bow legged. What mm -hmm. like uh, I mean, maybe you just said like basis support is that the basic indicator? Like if you had to say there's a good functional athletic bow leggedness or external rotation versus okay, now this is a problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is base of support the big one there? Like the shape that is made? Or could you just go into that a little bit more? Uh, like what yeah. at what point is this a problem versus is someone who presents maybe as just a good accelerator in sport and those like athletic type qualities? Yeah. Well, it's a problem if it starts to hurt. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the big indicator, of course. But um, otherwise, what, I'm not, like I will look at somebody's posture and how they look as a, just as just like a quick snapshot of what somebody's doing, like a movement, like posture isn't static, but it's a snapshot of somebody moving, self-organizing themselves against gravity. But when I'm looking at somebody who has valgus, I'm going to, sorry, varus, I'm sorry. We said varus, is that what we said? Bow-legged? Uh, yeah, bow-legged, yeah. Varus, yeah, yeah. So if I have somebody who's varus, right, I'm going to be looking at specific ranges of motion. I'm going to be looking at their hip flexion and their hip extension to see what space they have available. If they have got nothing, like when I lay them on their side and I do like a modified type Ober's sideline hip extension type assessment, and they can't get anywhere near zero degrees, which is their knee underneath their hip. 
And then I flip them on their back and I'm doing a hip flexion. And again, they can get nowhere near 90 degrees without having their knee deviating out towards their shoulder. Like to me, it's I need to improve the um, movement options of the joint because the way that I look at it, if I strike the ground, my foot, I have forces coming from my foot towards my hip and they've got to travel through my knee to get there. It's like this line of force from my foot through my knee to my hip. And then that creates the muscle and the shape change at the pelvis associated with accepting force or producing force. But if I've got varus knees, then every time I put force in the ground, that force is going towards the outside part of my knee. So I'm not having this integration of force from my foot to my hip. And then in order to progress me forward, so when my foot strikes the ground, the force goes from my foot through my knee to my hip. Then that force gets caught at my hip, let's just say. And then my upper body starts to come through and starts to counter rotate the rib cage. So now my hip starts to go into hip extension. So now that force that went from my foot, knee, hip, all the way up to my shoulder, now my shoulder catches it, throws it forward, and then now it goes shoulder, hip, knee, foot. But again, if that force is not going up towards my hip, but it's going out towards the side, towards the lateral knee, I'm not going to have that movement efficiency at my hip. Instead, I'm going to be arching my back, I'm going to be side bending and doing all these compensations. So for me, number one is, do they have their range of motion? Um, so like, do they have their hip extension, their hip flexion, shoulder flexion? Um, and then what does their squat look like? And another test that I'll do with them is I'll get them to have their feet side by side or touching each other right underneath their body. So their feet together. And I want to see what their knees look like because their feet together, which is or that is going to be the maximal amount of internal rotation you can produce. Like that tells me how much IR you have. If you get your feet together, but your knees are totally turned out to the side, I know that whenever I get you to press off of your metatarsal or your big toe or anything like that, that force is not coming from the hip. It's coming from the back. Your foot's going to twist out to the side. So you're not actually getting that push off we're looking for. You're going to get the calf. You're going to get that lateral hamstring. You're going to get the hip flexor. You're going to get the back. You're going to get the neck. You're getting all these. You're going to get the lat. You're going to get all these things that we may want as secondary things, but not as the primary pulsers of the body, right? So I'm looking at improving motion. And even if the knee, like sometimes you've got a knee that is twisted out so much that structurally it doesn't look substantially different when you do things, but the range of motion goes up. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at does their range of motion improve for them to be able to accept force, which is more of this hip flexion, and then produce force, which is more of this hip extension. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So it is. That makes sense a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I know part of that too. It's like, you know, there is that 
desire to get the easy answer is, well, hey, if you're bow-legged, do this. You know, and obviously there's, it's more like you said, there's a number of tests you would take them through to see where that weak link in the chain is. If you're looking for an answer of like exercises, I'm thinking like you've got to go that wider base support. You just have to think mm-hmm. in your head, if my knees are turning out to the side, then wherever my knees are, that's really where my base of support is and where I'm putting force into the ground. So I've got somebody who has their cowboy bow-legged on both sides. I will walk them, their feet out, um, you know, out to the side to perform a squat, but I will walk them out until I see that their knees appear straight. Mm. And you'll see this. You'll see that you get their feet um, hip-width apart, get them to do a squat. They don't move anywhere. There's barely a squat. You walk their feet out. And you'll see with a wider squat, they can get some depth. There's no more shifting in the hips. Um, They're actually feeling the right muscles. So what I'll typically do, because bow-legged typically associated with center center of gravity really far forward, I'll get them their back against the wall, maybe on a foam roller, like a hack squat. I'll elevate their toes. I'll have their feet really wide. Um, maybe I'll put a band around their their lower thigh, which I can talk about in a second as to why I'm doing that, and get them to do squats on the wall because now the toes elevation is putting my ankle in dorsiflexion and internally rotating the tibia, which varus knee or bow-legged is a tibia and a femur just twisting out together. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I want to happen with the knee bend is a tibia that turns in with the femur staying where it is. So it looks like the femur is ERing. Um, but the wall squat brings center gravity back. The wide stance uses their base support so I can create internal rotation. And then the toes elevation creates that IR coming up from the ground so that I'm able to acquire internal rotation. Yeah. Back on the first podcast we did, um, probably Two years ago, I'm not exactly sure I when. Think so. um, I think so. But you had said something about uh, like there's a link between what feels good for the athlete and they'll naturally look to do it. Mm-hmm. I and I I say this partially too, and and one just to kind of get um kind of a applied anchor down. Like all right, like here's a place you can apply this and see this and test this. Is yeah. I know for me, I'm I'm the opposite of bow legged. I'm more internally rotated, narrow ISA, and the the squat that that felt good for me was. Mm-hmm more of a narrowish stance and and maybe is it because it allowed more er i don't like it that was always what felt good before anyone taught me how to squat or anything like that and then i remember in my er, early mid-20s i i took the you know the nsca the cscs and the that book the whatever the book is and i was teaching a class on strength and conditioning at wilmington college and so i was going through a lot of this as the official you know i'm like all right well how am i going to teach people how to squat and so i'll start doing that and so it's like, all right, you know, your your hips are your feet are wider than shoulder width. You have like, you know, forty five degrees out, basically your toe or whatever it was. Like it was way mm-hmm. wider than I would have. My feet were much wider than I would have normally found comfortable to squat the way my body wanted to. Mm-hmm. And honestly, after <laughs> a few years of doing that, I think it really hurt some of my reactive markers. Maybe I was, maybe it made me be more internally rotated than I should have, or something like that, or. Yeah, I don't know, but I am just curious what uh, if you have any other thoughts on like like kind of like what an athlete would naturally self-select what feels good if if somebody's more varus is gonna like would they just naturally select that? So that's something that they would be more likely to possibly or 
Um, they would probably be more likely to have a wider stance, turn their toes out to the side, right? Because what happens with the varus is you've got the you've got the tibia and the femur, proximal like sorry, distal femur at the knee, and then proximal tibia twisting out to the side. And then again, in order for them not to fall out, they dump their feet in. That's what makes it look like a Boeing because the foot goes in, but the shin, the the knee goes out. So it creates that bow and like that bow at the tibia. And so what they'll typically do is they'll typically walk their feet really out because there's less bending at the tibia. And then they'll turn their feet out, which is external rotation, so that they can line up their foot with their tibia, with their knee, and that makes them feel good. So they'll have mm. a tendency to do that naturally, right? And then why it felt better for you having a narrow stance, I think it goes back to that base support thing. Again, you draw, if you have your feet hip width apart and you draw a rectangle now. So I'm starting at your heel, but now instead of ending at your toes, I extend it like another foot length in front. Well, if you were to go outside of that narrow box side to side, it's not going to feel so good because you don't have that space out there. You've got the space close together, but you've got this room in front of you, which is why even something like a staggered stance, narrow yeah. stance, it is will feel good for you. Yes, it but does. But for me, for me, it does not. Interesting. It doesn't. But if I do a slight stagger, but wider side to side, it feels good for me. Hmm. I feel like things are opening. Because I've got that space out to the side, I don't have it un- within, like underneath my body, if so to say. Because as soon as I, as soon as I stagger my feet, like if I bring my right foot forward and my left foot back, so that my toes on my left side are in line with my right heel, then I've created that rectangle front to back. Okay, I as a wider person don't have that. I've got the rectangle going out sideways. So for me, walking out to the side like a lateral lunge or those kind of movements just feel better. A sumo deadlift versus an RDL just feels better for me because that's where my base support is. Hmm. That's interesting because it it's kind of interesting without thinking of any of these things. I know the past, as I've started to learn more about this, I'll watch like how kids in the gym that I'm not coaching and that probably haven't been coached up too much, which I think can be a good thing because you get to watch what they're going to do, like just mm-hmm. doing like a hex bar deadlift. And I see a lot of kids who are more wide ASA types have a naturally wider stance than I would. I'm like, if I did that, that wouldn't feel good. I'd be doing too much IR. And part of me, you know, even before learning more from you would have wanted to say, hey, bring that stance in, you know, like, yeah, and it is, it is interesting, uh, you know, with all that in mind, I am, I am curious what your thoughts are on, um, and, and maybe another way of going to the applied piece here is, uh, you know, and, and this is something that you had said, I wish I had like a picture, I, I show this picture now at the seminars I do, um, my parents found it in their basement or something when they were cleaning it out, so this is like 20 years old, and actually it's more than 20 years old. Um, and it, it was me at the state championship in high jump and, mm-hmm. you know, like I, and, and the award stand, and I'm actually the most internally rotated of all these guys on the, if you look at the knees, like what direction are the yeah. knees pointing? It's a bunch mm-hmm. of narrow ISA people, like more tall, springy, elastic looking people, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. most everybody except for me, their knees were pointing out. 
Like yes. people who aren't wide, so they don't have like a wide stance, but but everything is ERing. And mm. I think that's the thing in the mentorship that was really interesting because that like that bounces you off the ground. Like it it you're mm. not gonna go down into the ground, it basically bounces you off quickly. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. part of what you need to you could say produce force in context of a high jump where you need to redirect forces upwards extremely quickly. It's very mm. beneficial to be in that alignment. But that's part of the reason I asked too. It's like, okay. I mean, I didn't see any cowboy Varus legs on that award stand, you know, but it's like yeah. people who basically the, the feet are right under the hip, but, at, but the knees are pointing out and a, a little bit, not like, you know, not like crazy straps to the side, but I, I know we had talked about this, I think after the mentorship at some point, but you know, like I, I, every system out there, there's a lot of systems that claim to be the system. And every time you claim to be the system, there's going to be some sort of shortcoming, but you're also going to have a facet of truth. And I think the thing we were talking about was like Goda and oh, the knees out and load the bow and all this stuff. And when you talked about the ER and I looked at these high jumpers, I was like, yeah, I could see that with the loading portion, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, but then again, there's context too. It's not like there's going to be a limit. There's going to be basis support. There's going to be a lot of other things. And all those people on the award stand got that not because they trained specifically for it. They just like played sports and ran and played basketball and all that stuff. And that's how their body adapted. You didn't Mm -hmm. try to force it. So, mm-hmm. I, I'm just, with all that being said, I'm, I am curious what your thought is on like a functional adaptation of external rotation to be like, to, to um, I guess you could say fight gravity, <laughs> to, to yeah. bounce. And when is that like a good thing in training? Like, where would you take that? I know I've seen you, for example, doing like a swing away to your loaded side. Like if the, mm-hmm. the split stance, like the right, I've seen David Weck do this stuff as well, where it's like he's got a medicine ball and, or a, and he's loading the the if his right leg is in forward in a split stance or something like a split hinge Mm -hmm. he's loading that right side in a little external rotation and Mm -hmm. that being that like fighting gravity force production component um just thoughts on that like that like like what is good with that where where can it go wrong um you know thoughts for training and everything that goes with that so i think you know we have to divide internal rotation to two different categories like if you look at gate the um, mid stance portion is the longest phase. And you, what you'll see is you'll see when the foot strikes the ground, heel strike, got this negative shin angle, then your foot, your full foot's on the ground, but you've still got the shin behind you. Mm. And me, that's your earlier mid stance. So that is going to be more associated with hip flexion. Um, so hip flexion based internal rotation. So if you look at uh, when the anterior glute med kicks on, when the um, medial hamstring kicks on, like that's going to be in those earlier ranges of hip flexion, but associated with, again, putting force into the ground. And so that early mid stance is like your deceleration, your force absorption. Mm -hmm. But so you've got that form of internal rotation. And then the next form, the, the next phase of this late mid stance. So this is when your foot is directly underneath you and until the point that your heel lifts up. So think of like foot underneath you as being the top of the step up and then mm. foot behind you with the heel just about to lift up. That's kind of like your split squat position. Got it. Right? So you've got those two different phases and that's more of your propulsion. That's when you're producing the force. So internal rotation could be absorption and it can be production of force. Um, I like the term redistribution of force better than absorption because, Mm. and this is just terminology, but it doesn't really matter. You can call it whatever. 
But the reason why is because um, absorption kind of indicates that you're absorbing it into one tissue. Whereas what really happens is, and what you really want to do is you want to dissipate or distribute force over greater surface area. So it's not so localized absorbed. So people get patellar tendonitis, it's because the knee is not in a position for the quads and other structures to absorb this amount of force coming from the ground. So you got this tibia is turned out and now all the force is getting absorbed at the tendon and then it starts to hurt, right? So anyway, to go back on that, what we need to do is we need to think about that the force redistribution or absorption, that early mid stance has some component of external rotation in it. Okay. So when my weight goes back towards my heels, that is moving towards external rotation. When it goes towards my toes, that is moving more towards force production, internal rotation, et cetera. Okay. So when I'm doing something like catching a weight, or if I've got a staggered stance position, right foot back, left foot forward, and I take a med ball and I quickly chop it towards my right foot, because the weight is going back, I'm turning towards that right side. I need to have some degree of external rotation to shift my weight back into my heel. I also need internal rotation to make sure that when I'm turning towards this right side, my knee doesn't just bow out like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Keep my knee in line with my foot so that my pelvis can rotate around the femur. Okay? So the earlier mid-stance force absorption requires both external rotation and internal rotation. That's why I don't have an issue with people saying you need more external rotation to be able to absorb the force. Makes total sense. But inside that onion of external rotation, at the center of it needs to be internal rotation so that I'm able to stay in line, I'm able to rotate around something. But by saying that internal rotation and pronation is not effective for performance is very short-sighted because the internal rotation is the producing and the distributing of force. Imagine landing with your legs locked into extension. You're going to land really hard and hard and loud into the ground. Whereas what you should be doing, if you run a land and sound like a ninja, you can't even hear the landing and you're absorbing as much force. You have knees that are slightly bent and that bending of the knee, that's what distributes the force so that it's not so hard onto one specific joint. So we do need that external rotation, but we do also need the internal. With the and then on the flip side, if I were to try to drive, you know, propulsion, um, acceleration, or even like top speed type things, I'm looking at how can I create overcoming movements. So I don't care about the eccentric. I care about the concentric. This is when I'm doing my um, non-counter movement jumps. This is when I'm doing my trap bar deadlifts. This is when I'm doing my overcoming isometrics against a pin. This is when I'm doing my um, you know, med ball throw to a sprint. So by doing this catching of the weight and this, or like a 
like a like a like a quick clean with a kettlebell or something like that, where I'm going down, that is going to cause my pelvic floor and my diaphragm and the muscles to quickly relax. And then by catching it, they quickly contract into that range. So for somebody who is very stiff, that's a very effective strategy to create because they've got this pelvic floor, it's super stiff. They got glutes super stiff. They've got their outside quads or IT band that are super stiff. And all of a sudden, I don't have the room to move down into a squat. I don't have the space. But if I quickly drop underneath a kettlebell or a weight, I'm causing my body to fall in free fall. I'm unweighting my body really fast to then blow past that tension and then catch it and create new tension, if that makes sense, right? A lot of times people will do these kind of quick drop movements and feel their knee or feel their IT band going too much. These are pers- these are people who are going too far into external rotation mm-hmm. and they don't have that internal rotation associated with it. Yeah. Right. So that early mid stance front foot elevated split squat, the late mid stance is more your rear foot elevated split squats. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well-recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herbs supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can use the code JOEL15, that's J-O-E-L-1-5 for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, that reminded me a little bit. Um, I think it was uh, Mike Camperini and Justin Moore were on uh, talking about, I think like, the joke was that Justin moved like an iron, big iron bar. And one of the <laughs> things they were doing to kind of help uh, get him like more depth, even in a standing vertical was like, yeah, like standing with heels elevator on a slant box and then doing like mm-hmm. cleans. I don't know if it's with the water bag or just like kettlebells, but basically just like kettlebell squat cleans, dropping in and mm-hmm. catching and those types of things. Uh, I imagine that being to recapture like that mid stance IR piece. But with that, you know, you were, you were mentioning, and, and I had mentioned it too, like the David Weck uh, and the, like, watching him do like the, and you've done this exercise or these exercises as well, like slinging a weight, like diagonally, like you said, a medicine ball, mm-hmm. like kind of slinging it towards the front leg for more external, like it's biasing more the external rotation piece there. Um, uh, is that, tell me a little bit more about that type of movement and how you use it in, in your work or your training. Like, cause these are things that I, I am starting to pay more attention to. Uh, mm-hmm. I did a, a podcast with Clifton Harsky more recently, and he does a lot of kettlebell swings and a lot of swing-based work. And so I yeah. even thinking about doing like swings in conjunction with the squat, which I've seen you do, like taking yes. advantage of not only angular momentum and an increased downforce, but also something that has an arc of it. It's like you're loading up. It's kind of like you almost have to work with this catch of loading even in a squat pattern and things like that. So I've been thinking about that a lot more lately, but 
Um, just tell me a little bit about when and how you are using some of these movements where you're like throwing a weight towards the split front leg to you know, give that external rotation piece to it. Yeah. So the way that I use, especially kettlebells and, and those other things like the, the quick drops is really to unweight the body, right? Cause the more the, like the less force going into the ground or the, or the lighter I am, the more external rotation I'm creating because there's less tension, the, the tissues are yielding more. Um, and there's, you know, there, there's like my pelvic floor, all this stuff is starting to relax. And so when I'm using these type of quick drops or using a kettlebell for momentum, let's just say I'm doing a split squat position. So I'm like, I'm right foot forward, got my right hand holds the kettlebell and I'm swinging the kettlebell forward and back the deceleration of the kettlebell is intended to open up that posterior part of my pelvis that otherwise may be squeezed. So let's just say I have a hard time getting hip extension on this right side. And hip extension is associated with big toe extension. I may have the right foot in front because I'm now putting my leg into a hip flex position, creates length through the glute, I guess you can say. and by swinging the kettlebell, as the kettlebell comes down back towards my pocket and behind me, that's naturally going to pull my weight back into my heel, and it's going to quickly yield the back of my pelvis, going to reduce tension in my pelvic floor, reduce tension in my glute. And then in order for me, again, because the weight's going to keep on trying to pull me back in out to the side, which is more of this external rotation, I now have to put weight or push the inside of my foot into the ground. So now I can get that femur to internally rotate. And then by doing that, that's going to reverse gears and then bring the kettlebell back up and start to extend my hip. So the weight and the quick dropping is meant to yield the tissues, is meant to relax the tissues, just that quick relaxation so that I can, again, blow past any type of tissue because we have to think that a lot of people who are well-trained or are strong, they have all this tension, muscle mass strength. If we were to give them something like lay on your back and reach your arms up and the intention of reaching the arms is to open up some part of our back or our chest, whatever it is, we are asking that person to create that expansion or decompression or yielding in a certain area, but they can't do it because they have so much tension that was created by load that maybe I might need to use something like, hey, I want you to catch the ball. I want you to get into a squat position. I'm going to stand on a box and you're going to squat down really quickly and I'm going to drop the ball. You're going to catch it at the bottom. Or I'm going to have cables that are going to pull you forward. So you now have to resist it and bring your rib cage back. So it's creating this external load. So internally, we can open up range of motion. So these quick drop movements, they are primarily intended to open up space in a very specific area. If I'm doing a kettlebell swing in any capacity, I am now asking my sacrum to be able to nutate, my posterior pelvic floor to be able to open, 
If I am doing that swing in a hip flex position, then I am asking my posterior capsule, so where my femur is, to be able to open, right? So that I can open up that space so that when the kettlebell starts to swing forward again, I now have that space to close to extend my hip. But if you're asking somebody who is walking around like a cowboy or Mm -hmm. have their glutes always squeezed to then do a deadlift, like I feel my back a lot Mm -hmm. because they don't have that space open in the back of their hip to be able to bend over. So what they do is they just flex from their rib cage, they crunch their rib cage or they they crunch their lower rib or their lower ribs down and they use the rectus to pull everything down and forward. There's no actual posterior weight shift. So any type of quick drops or um and you and then you can like mitigate or manage how far they go down to open up the certain area. So for example, let's say I do heels elevated box squat, but it's a quick drop. And so I'm standing and then I quickly drop the kettlebell and catch it when my butt hits the box. Now, what I've just said to you is you are now going to open up the femur's ability to internally rotate versus I'm going to take the box away. And what you're going to do is you're going to squat all the way down. You're going to catch it all the way at the bottom of the squat. Now I'm asking you to open up the back of your pelvis, right? So it is an easy way to quickly yield the tissues to open up the space for you to then be able to move into. So it has to be, it's very targeted. To me, it's very targeted to where you're trying to open. It's not like, okay, if I do a quick drop and systematically everything is going to open. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. if my hips... If, so if my hips forward, I'm opening up my femur. If my hips back, I'm opening up the back of my hip, like where my sacrum is. Um, if I'm squatting down to a box, then whatever mechanics that are already that would or that should occur during that movement, they are just going to get open to a quick degree or open that space up quickly because that person's so tense they can't create the space themselves. So I need something that uses momentum to blow that space open. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, that's interesting with the momentum piece too, because what, um, I guess I just think about when is that a good strategy and when it's not, I mean, I guess if they can do it, it works, right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think as long as they're maintaining the movement strategy, it's effective. Like what I will tend to do is I will use, I will insert some kind of exercise that I use as an assessment tool mm. for improvement. So for example, um, I will add like a, sometimes I'll add like a toe touch breathing in their program as a way to be like, okay, I just did this quick drop. Did the toe touch improve? Mm. Or did the leg raise improve? Or whatever it is. Or sometimes I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to add this into my program. So I'm going to just do a straight leg raise real quick. And see at the end of the program, did the straight leg raise improve or did it lose or or did I steal motion? Right. So I will quickly assess, but although I mean, logistically, that sometimes is not effective strategy. um, But for me, it's always reassessing to make sure that what I'm doing is effective. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That it's interesting. That actually got me thinking about 
Uh, Rafe Kelly has talked about the idea of training at the highest possible complexity. And I think, you know, it's common to say, oh, these correctives are too low level. Let's, you know, you, you kind of want to train someone where they're at. And I, I think about, um, like, like, you know, a low level, a low level thing versus if you could do something that, and, and I'll just, I'm just going to go a little bit kind of not off the rails necessarily, but, um, mm-hmm. sometimes even if I'm doing like, if I'm getting ready to strength train, I'll do like break dance exercises to warm up my Apley's test is the best, you know, it's like, and I'm like, well, if I could just do this, you know, and there's a lot of like pressure on my side, like sideways loading and all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, and I'm like, well, I, I wonder how much of that, you know, I wonder how many things in Alex's course, or, you know, I'm getting by doing this type <laughs> of workout. And I even with sprinting. So just the other day I was working, um, I was showing the, the Leela exigen gear, which is like these little microweights. You, they're like 100 and 200 uh, gram weights you Velcro on to limbs. And nice. I was showing it to someone who had had some knee issues who was varus. Um, and I put the uh, one of the little microweights, so it just IR'd the tibia on the knee that was affected. And he was mm-hmm. sprinting with this, and he's like, that feels really good. And it's just, it's interesting to think, like, what if that, like, you know, what if that high complexity thing could actually be what he needed? You know what I'm saying? And just kind of, like, getting, the more you go through this and you maybe start to understand where you could get away with velocity, like, let's let's make that the thing and maybe we don't have to do as much stuff um, on the lower level. Of course, I think the more athletic someone is, I think the more able you are to get away with that, I think, yeah. you know, for sure. But like, take something like a pogo jump, like the, like the quick pogo jumps, yeah. or skip, like, you're skipping rope, okay, like, or like jump rope, whatever. You know, and then let's say you take those people and then you think about an exercise like jumping on a trampoline, right? Just quickly jumping on a trampoline. Then you take that and then you talk about exactly what we talked about before, like doing a heels elevated squat and you're catching a med ball or catching a kettlebell. Those are all kind of similar things across the board. They may be higher levels in terms of complexity and coordination. But at the same time, you're getting the same, you know, the same stimulus, which is you're quickly relaxing and quickly, like quickly absorbing and quickly mm. producing force. But that quick absorption had to happen for you to be able to produce force because of what's happening before is in order for you to produce force, you are just, you know, compensating by shoving joints forward or arching your back. But by you catching this weight, by you landing quickly and getting that quick deceleration of force or by landing on a trampoline that has give to it so that you're able to deform certain tissues and deformation as being absorbing, then like the, the springs of the trampoline are creating that production and contraction for you. And so your body's just reacting no different than like, catching a ball, whereas you're producing it yourself by doing something like a pogo jump. And now you're saying, hey, now do the pogo jump for height and do it for whatever, do tuck jumps now for speed. You're all creating the same stimulus, the same principle. It's just with different levels of complexity. So you doing something that requires like sprinting with additional weights, that made that athlete heavier. So now when they landed, they have more deformation or deformation, which then allowed them to yield their tissues yeah. and expand their tissues more, right? So sometimes 
making somebody heavier at certain parts of their motion is actually opening up motion, right? And then unweighting them at other points is effective too. It's like, I got to unweight them to get them off the ground faster. I've got to weight them into the ground so they're able to absorb the force more effectively. And more importantly, they're able to redistribute the force over a greater surface area, which is what was happening with the knee pain is maybe it was a very focal thing because he was he was landing on the ground and he wasn't landing effectively. He was trying to get off the ground really quickly. But when you put him in a situation like I'm sitting on a chair and I'm standing up, which requires my foot on the ground for a long period of time, hey, that really hurts. Well, maybe what you did is you solved it because you pulled him into the ground heavier yeah. and then he had to come out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, the, it's like a, such a problem solving way to do it. It's like, it's just giving you more time on the ground on that side because it just pulled your tibia and the IR made it heavier. And now you get yeah. to experience that and work with it. And exactly. yeah, it just, it does give you a new frame to, yeah, I, I've just come to prioritize stimulus so much too, and then constantly mm. finding the way to get the stimulus almost, that's like the non-negotiable. And then, well, how are we going to do this now? Yeah. But I, you know what I found to be very effective is playing around with the amplitude and the impulse, mm. you know, and with higher amplitude, typically, not always, there's going to be a lower impulse, right? To a certain degree sometimes, right? Like, if I'm like, for example, if I want to get somebody to do like lateral high ends, like lateral jump, I can do two different ways. I can get them to do a lateral, you know, like a lateral hide in when they're and to stay underneath like the fence or something where they're staying low and they're trying to go as far as they possibly can to the other side versus saying, I don't want you to go very far, but I want you to jump up as high as you can as if you're jumping over the fence. You're, so one is staying under the fence, the other is trying to jump over the fence. And so by jumping over the fence, it requires me to absorb more force and stay on the ground for longer and really sit into those joints versus if I'm trying to do these really wide skaters, well, I don't need to be able to absorb force. I, I need to be able to catch myself quickly and then throw myself as far and as you know, powerful as I can to the other side. So by changing the amplitude, I change the impulse, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many ways that the play and exploration can help you feel that. I, yeah. you know, with the bow legatus, I did want to ask you, because you were talking about this before, and, you know, I was just thinking about lateral width, and we were talking about squat, um, like squat mechanics for someone who's more bow-legged. What about something like a lateral lunge? Because I think that is something where there's a lot of interesting options that we could see. Um, mm -hmm. I know the isometric lateral lunge that's in your lower body program I use all the time. Um, I love mm -hmm. that one, but I'm just curious, um, maybe if you could explain like, like that and how that might change or be interesting for someone who's more bow-legged or more naturally internally rotated. I'd be curious what, how that would change once we're doing something in the frontal plane or once we're working the legs more independently. Yeah. I mean, look, you can use lateral lunge for both. You may yeah. just have to change the implement. Like somebody who's got more um, like knocked knees, potentially focusing on getting the femurs to be able to internally rotate might be your first priority versus somebody who's more bow-legged. What they're going to have is they're going <clears> to <throat> have their tailbone 
being tucked underneath them, mm. like a lot of tension around their tailbone. And so opening that up might be strategy number one. So let's just break down two different kinds. Like for example, let's say I did a lateral lunge, but I had my foot on top of a very small box, like one of those like yoga steppers or, you know, I'm talking about that plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So something that's like two inches. So, or on an Eric's pad or whatever, I have your right foot on top of that. And I'm doing a lateral lunge to the right by putting my hip into more flexion. I am naturally going to get the femur to be able to internally rotate more. So that might be more effective for somebody who is um, more, uh, not bow-legged, but knock-kneed, like valgus knees, because they need that femur to be able to internally rotate to straighten out their knee. That's- Whereas, Sorry. So is it, I just, just real quick, cause I've just, my brain's backwards now. I, like if someone's already in knock kneed or internally rotated, wouldn't the thought be that they would need more external rotation in that position? Do you know what I'm saying? Or why is it that they, they need, need more, more external rotation at the distal femur? So how it works is yeah, yeah. if I have knock knees, my lower femurs, because of the VL is pushing everything in, that's creating this valgus knee. So at the hip itself, I don't have internal rotation. I've okay. got a femur that's externally rotated, got it. but the knee is adducting at the knee itself because the knee is extending. Does that it. make sense? Yeah. So someone who, so maybe there's a few different versions, like, you know, someone whose knees are in, like, like someone whose femur actually spirals down from the top versus maybe something else. Like, yeah. So typically speaking, if you've got a femur that can, if you've got a hip that can internally rotate. You'll have a tibia that, in, that can internally rotate, but the knee is relatively externally rotated. So it's not valgus. And so if you, if you draw a line on the outside of the thigh, what you'll see is the thigh is straight from the hip down to the knee. But once you get into the knee, it kind of curves inwards. Mm. And then once you get to the tibia or, like, or the, the fibular head, it starts to bow back outwards. So it's like a little divot at the knee. That's somebody who doesn't actually have true supine internal rotation. Got it. Okay. So that's, yeah, that could be a little confusing. And so those people there, you're like, okay, I need to improve the ability to internally rotate the femur. That's first and foremost. Whereas somebody who's bow-legged, they've got everything twisted out. Okay, but the reason why the lateral lunge can be effective for them, for the sorry, for the knock knees is because because I'm moving in the lateral plane, I'm moving in this external rotation plane, everything is going to start to twist out. But again, in order for me not to roll on the outside of my ankle, I've got to internally rotate. Yeah. So now I can externally rotate the knee, but internally rotate the hip and the foot. If that makes sense. Yeah. Right. It, it, yeah, definitely. And then somebody who's got bow legged, you could do something like a toes elevation lateral lunge where, because the toes elevation is going to naturally try to flex my hips a little bit because my ankle's going in dorsiflexion. Got it. And so that's going to nutate my sacrum or it's going to reduce tension in the back of my pelvis. And then that's going to start to reduce the tension that's pulling the femur out to the side. So lateral lunges can be effective for both, but they're going to be the most effective for those with bow legs. 
because they are standing with a wider stance. Their sockets are facing out to the side. Mm. So by doing exercises out to the side, that's going to be way more effective. They're going to have a very hard time in the split squat position. It's too yeah. tight. It's too tight. People who have valgus knees, it's going to be okay. Not going to be a problem. But that 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 varus knees, I typically either get them to do step ups, um, lateral lunges, or sometimes I'll get them to do like curtsy type yeah. lunges or step downs um, because that maintains the external rotation at the knee, but it forces the internal rotation to happen at the foot. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 So to me, like it's hard, it's hard to conceptualize because to me, internal and external rotation is not so black and white. Yeah. <laughs> they happen at the same time, but at different capacities. The way that I think about it, if my foot's in front doing a split squat, okay, my front leg, that's that early mid stance. Let's say it's 60% um, internal rotation, 40%, sorry, 60% external rotation. 40% internal rotation. The back leg that's in the late mid stance, that's like 80% internal rotation, but 20% external. Because if there was no external rotation, then my knee would just be adducting and caving in. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Instead of staying in line. So those are arbitrary numbers, but that's just the way that I conceptualize it so that we have more external rotation on the front leg but it still has to be some degree of internal rotation so that my knee is not just twisting out. It's like this balancing of force. The inside part of my knee is if it goes in, it's IR. If it comes out, it's ER. And so I need this balancing of force happening at all times, right? Yeah. That's what creates sagittal plane, by the way. It's like if I have too much frontal plane, knee goes in or knee goes out. If I have too much IR, ER, my knee twists in, twists out. But if I've got an equal balance of frontal and transverse plane, that's how it looks like the sagittal plane is, is occurring, right? Yeah, I, li I really like, I've grown to be a more uh, larger and larger fan of the lateral lunge type work, especially in sprint prep, because I think a lot of people just think of sprinting as straight front to back. And they don't, I mean, there is so much of that adductor glute. And then, like you said, when you, as soon as you lateral lunge, it's a huge ER moment that you have it to is. deal with. And a lot of like acceleration, there's a lot of ER moment you have to deal with. I also yeah. love what you said, though. It kind of makes me think of like, like the yin yang symbol. It's like you got the mm -hmm. black part, but there's a little white dot inside. So it's like, even yes. no matter how much of this one end of the pole you have, if like ER is one pole and IR is the, the other. I think we do like to, it's easy for the brain to work to generalize things to, yeah. to make it easier to understand. So it's either it's all ER or all IR. So mm -hmm. I like that little, that thought that there's, well, there's always just a little bit, even when you think that it's, it's all something or other, there still needs to be a little bit of that other thing in there to control yeah. it. And exactly. it, I, think know, about it this way too, Joel, like if I get you to do a single leg deadlift and I get you to hold the single leg deadlift, like at the bottom of the single leg deadlift. And I get you holding a kettlebell, so right foot's forward, holding the kettlebell in your left hand, and you're at the bottom at the single leg deadlift. And then I say, I want you to stay there. And what I want you to do is I want you to take the kettlebell from your left hand and throw it to your right and catch it on the right. Okay, that's that going on the outside of my right foot now 
is this ER moment. Yeah. But in order for me to roll out, I got to quickly IR into the ground. So I've got a lot of external rotation happening, but I've got enough internal rotation to make sure my knee is stable, doesn't move. And then I throw it in the other way, throw it inside now. Now it's a lot of IR moment, but now I need a lot more ER at the hip to be able to make sure my knee doesn't just collapse inwards. And so it's that constant, that's the way to visualize it is that we need, there's a moment, but what is the force that's being produced? And then that's how we can play around with it. The lateral lunge is just that leg that I'm moving away from. That is just pronation of the foot. That is my body moving towards the big toe. And if I keep on doing a lateral lunge, my heel lifts up onto my toes. But that's way that way you can be like, okay, I need more hip extension out of the left hip. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put the right foot on a box because if I put the right foot on a box, that puts more weight onto my left foot naturally. Then I'm going to put the cable all the way down the bottom and I'm going to do a cable lift with the left side as I do the lateral lunge to the right. So now I maximize the foot pronation of the left and I'm getting more force in the ground because when I'm lifting the cable, in order for me to lift it, I've got to put more weight through my foot into the ground to be able for me to pick it up. Mm. So now I'm doing a low cable lateral lunge to the right, emphasizing that hip extension through that left side and creating a larger external rotation moment on the right side for my right leg to be able to control. And that is the moving into a cut, decelerating, absorbing force, right? So you can overemphasize the different components of deceleration or acceleration, right? Yeah. That's one of the the coolest things that has been on my radar the past few years is like, I guess you could just generalize it and say, well, human beings are, we're tool users. And the idea mm -hmm. of not just, hey, you're not just doing this like lower body. I mean, they're really all total body in, in way exercises, but you're not just doing this exercise. You can also uh, you're adding a moment into it by swinging this kettlebell, by swinging this, arcing this medicine ball. Um, mm. I really enjoy sprinting with different things or doing plyometric movements with different things from an upper body perspective, like carrying medicine mm. balls and working them different ways and seeing how it changes things. And it's it's kind of interesting once, even just talking to you with the cable movement in that, I actually, like I'm making these links almost between just like where where is the weight going, where is the leg and how is it being loaded, but also how does it need to make it so you're not falling over at the same time. Exactly. Like how do you overcome that external moment, right? It's like, think about it. It's like I'm using a kettlebell or a cable or a medicine ball or whatever it is to create an external moment. What do I have to do internally to create the internal moment to prevent me from caving in or, yeah. or, or caving out too much? And, and that's where I love using constraints. Like I love using the band. I love using a box, uh, like, a, like the medicine ball, the cables, the cables. If you gave me anything, you said you only got one option of what you can use, it would be cables because hmm. they pull you towards it. So you have to shift yourself against it or that's if I'm facing towards it or if I'm facing away from it, it's trying to pull me back towards it. So now I have to you know, open up the front of my body, open up my pump handle and all these other things 
to resist it. So now I could just be like, you suck at squatting. <laughs> Every exercise you do, you're facing towards the cable machine. That's going to be your split squats. That's going to be yeah. your rows. You know what I mean? To open up the backside of your body. And so once you start to be like, okay, I need to create this external moment so that internally you're creating the motion that I actually want you to be able to do. That's where the power in this stuff comes, right? Yeah. Even stuff like, um, like a kettlebell swing, like I hadn't appreciated just a regular old kettlebell swing, like what that does for like opening up the backside of the body, like, and it's a low reach to do it. You have to have some posterior expansion. It's like mm-hmm. these things swinging in space can are, o- open things up. And it, it really, it's, uh, you know, I guess you think about that, like complexity, like if you're trying to train at the highest level of complexity, I guess it'd be great if you could use that to gain posterior expansion rather than remedial low level mm-hmm. stuff that the person had to mess around with for five, 10 minutes before a session, you know? hundred percent. And then you can think about, now you look at the kettlebell swing, you're like, why do people get back issues with the kettlebell swing? And you'll see some people, they have their stance way too wide yeah. when they should oh, be yeah. narrow like you, right? Or they don't have any space in the front or the back of their body. So going in this bilateral stance, as soon as they initiate the forward movement of the kettlebells, kettlebells going forward, they arch to their TL or arch to the lower back to create it because mm. the kettlebell having that bilateral stance, they didn't... It, didn't promote the you know the the movement or the opening up of the joints we're looking for. So what I do with some people is I'll be like, okay, I need hip extension on the right side, and I need hip flexion and interrotation on the left. So how can I do that? I'm going to do a half kneeling variation, where what I'm going to do is I'm going to have the right knee down, left leg out, sorry, left leg up, but slightly out to the side. And I'm going to do a half kneeling kettlebell swing through my legs so that the kettlebell, sorry, is going towards the left leg and then going back. So I'm hinging into the right as the kettlebell comes down. And then I've opened up that right side. Now I can close it to throw the kettlebell up. So it's like taking a water balloon. And when the kettlebell comes down, I'm squeezing the front of the water balloon, which is my right hip to open up the back of my of my right hip and then i'm going to squeeze the back of the right hip and that's going to throw the kettlebell mm-hmm. towards the left but now the kettlebell is going up towards the left that's creating this external rotation moment on the left side so now i have to create the femoral internal rotation to catch it right so like it becomes really fun when you start thinking about it that way yeah i had uh, i had clifton harsky on the show not too long ago and he was talking about just different like lateral kettlebell movements like lateral lunges with kettlebell swings and all these things and just how people just would just light people's glutes up like none other yeah. and it is yeah. it's really cool to think about those motions combined with uh and it's talking about like like we were saying like the lateral lunge piece as well i, I did mm-hmm. want to just kind of confirm I, you had said something i thought was interesting is people who like with the lateral lunge and just maybe sitting on this oh i i before i get to this question i did have one other because you got something me thinking about something is you know so me like more of a narrow narrow stance preference i've felt better i feel like my back hit holds a better position i can do kettlebell swings fine um but mm. i've always felt just a little bit better when someone gave me like the little fat bells like the you know they're basically like a kettlebell in each hand that fits in your hand and i would just swing mm. to the outside and i could do a narrower stance that just feels oh, yeah. so much Definitely. easier and better for yeah. me 
So, so I, I suppose that preference would manifest itself if you could give someone one or the other. Someone who liked a wide stance would probably be maybe better off with a wide, and someone who's like me maybe do better with fat bells or something like that. And honestly, like the double, like having both hands holding onto a kettlebell going in between the legs, that's probably like one of the last variations I would do because mm-hmm. that requires the most amount of internal rotation to happen. Yeah. Because you have your arms really close together. You're, it's going right in between where your center of gravity or center of mass is. And that's that requires the most amount of internal rotation. Having the hands right beside your body, I mean, that's opening up your pump handle, getting yeah. the fat grips, right? That now you have to squeeze hard to create more tension. Tension here is just more internal rotation. But if you think about it this way, if you've got a fat grip, you're creating a lot of tension here. So you've got maximal amount of internal rotation happening at your hand. And so that internal rotation starts to dissipate as it goes up the chain. So relative to the hand, you've got less internal rotation in your shoulder, which therefore means you do have internal rotation, but it's less than your hand. So you've got some space to open at your shoulder. Mm. But back grips are awesome. But I, I, I really do like the suitcase or the farmer type of swings. Those are my favorite. And then, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know what I'll do to, to go back on that? And then you can ask the next question is that what I'll do with a lot of people with the quick drops is I won't do a dynamic quick drop. I'll get them to hold a position. Like I said, at the bottom of a uh, stagger stance or kickstand deadlift or something, and they hold the hinge position and then they just do a quick drop position there so that, again, I can maximize the tissue that I'm trying to open really quickly versus doing a dynamic where now they have to coordinate that tissue expansion or relaxation, right? So I'll start with positional quick drop and then I'll make it dynamic Mm. and then I'll make it more integrated. So now we've got our kettlebell swings and maybe I'll do a kettlebell swing with a walkthrough or something like that, or a lateral lunge to a quick drop. Do you know what I mean? So more integrated. Yeah. I I love that. You, you, I'm going to be messing with probably like five or 10 kettlebell variations that aren't just the typical. And it's funny because I have like for a short period of time, I did really like kettlebell swings, but I didn't long term, they just didn't feel like something that was something that was really beneficial. And maybe it was something about having a wider stance and how my body operates, but I'm excited to try some of these other smaller variations. Um, I wanted to ask, yeah, so here's the question I was going to ask you and I had to do a lot with, we talked about like the preferential stance in a, a bilateral and then Something with the lateral uh, squat, like somebody who, because like, I think like if you had an athlete say, hey, go do a lateral lunge and hold it or something, and just noticing what they want to do as a way to learn about the athlete, like we were talking about, mm-hmm. like natural, hey, go do a hex bar deadlift, kind of watch their natural tendencies over time and you, you learn a little bit about them. What are some things that you would learn in a lateral lunge? For example, someone who always is turning their their toe out in that like if it's like hey no i want you to be straight ahead and maybe get a little bit of knee over that big toe and like pronate it's just knee out knee out you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. what is that telling you about that individual if you're constantly seeing that and what are some like you mentioned like you could like do some different things like li- elevate the the foot that's lunging out or things like that because mm. i think that's real common is that toe pointing out and and some good ways to be able to work with that without just saying hey every time point your toe and every time point your toe in 
Um, and then I'll just, the one last thing I do want to mention this is I do think it's interesting if you watch lateral lunges being coached, it's always mm-hmm. like, just go point your knee out of your toe or whatever. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will always cue the person to start with their toes pointed forward. Um, I know a lot of people when I, if you, if you type in lateral lunge on YouTube or something, it's always the toes are out, knees are out. And that doesn't give them the opportunity to, again, create the internal rotation, that deceleration. So for me, I'll tell you a couple main things that I see, and then I could talk about some strategies. Main things I see, toes pointed out, knees turn out, um, too wide of a stance so that when, they, when they're shifting their pelvis towards that leg, it's like their knee is way outside of their pelvis. They can't, like, they can't get that that length enough through the adductor that's what they feel like but do you know what i mean like that sit bone isn't stacking over the heel it's kind of inside of their body hmm. the other one is as they push over to the sorry as they go over to that right leg they don't actually push through the foot to get there it's almost like this upper body thing where they just kind of pick themselves up and go towards that right leg versus getting into like a slight you know knee bent position and then driving through the inside of the foot almost like you're kind of like this like this speed skater trying to get over i'll always cue somebody in a lateral lunge to squat down a little bit and even if i'm so if i'm going to the right i'll even get them to shift over to the left so have more weight on the left foot then i want you to push your body weight towards the right to get there that is a major thing that I see is that trail leg is just out to the side. Mm. It's just there. Yeah. Um, and so I really want to emphasize pushing off the inside edge of that foot. Mm. So if I see somebody who has their toe pointed out and they keep on turning their foot as they're doing it, I know they're running out of room. They don't have that femoral internal rotation, right? That early yeah. mid stance in their hip. And so Doing stuff like, um, you know, elevating their whole foot, putting their foot on something that's going to put their knee in or their hip into a little bit more hip flexion. So when they sit into it, they don't need to turn their foot out because I'm already putting their pelvis in a slight anterior pelvic tilt, which is actually okay um, because the movement that they're able to do is now get that anterior glute need to be able to internally rotate that foot always turning out. You don't have the hip internal rotation. It's not there. So I'll do that, but, um, I'll narrow the stance. Typically speaking, when I get somebody to do a lateral lunge, it's not a really wide stance. It's like just outside of shoulder width apart, just to start. And then I'll see how that looks. You know, if it's too narrow, if when they go over to the side, their hips start to turn mm. towards the trail leg. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. they're falling on the outside of their ankle. So you go a little bit wider. Um, so they turn their foot out, turn their knee out. They don't actually stack the sit bone over the heel. They hinge the movement too much. They hyperextend the trail knee. And they keep their chest up the entire time they're doing it, which is just usually associated with that trail leg not being able to extend the hip. 
Hmm. Right. And I personally like the lateral lunge. I mean, I've said this so many times. I don't hmm. really like the term progression regression because it yeah. doesn't lead. It doesn't allow you like um, differences or doesn't allow you to deviate from it. Um, but if I were to say a statement like, I prefer lateral lunge over a split squat initially, it's because it the lateral lunge doesn't require as much hip extension, doesn't require as much hip flexion as a split squat does. And most people who are really stiff, they can access the space in a lateral lunge because most people who start to get stiff, they squeeze the joints front to back. So you can take a water balloon and you squeeze it, all the fluid's going to go outside to side. It's the same thing. So it's easier to access. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, uh, sorry. I, yeah, it was good. I was just going to say, if I could add like, like I do a lot of like Jay Schrader's extreme ISO program. It's like, you know, ISO yeah. lunge, ISO hang, ISO straight leg raise. It's a lot of sagittal stuff. I feel like if I could add one thing to that series, that'd be a staple. Just be like isolateral lunge. Like it's in 100%. so many of my programs. And I just think too, yeah. it's like, it just gives you another good medium to observe. We're so used to just observing athletes in the sagittal plane. And there's so much gold there that fits mm-hmm. with multi-directional and even like acceleration and sprint performance. That's really important. And so, um, yeah, they, I personally I, think that the 45 degree range is the most underutilized range. Yeah. So if you got 90 degrees in front, like a split squat, got 90 degrees in lateral lunge, I think the 45 degrees coming from a, an upper body and lower body is so underutilized because it's a halfway point in between. If I've got someone who's got like a rounded shoulder and they've got such limited range of motion in their shoulder, I will do a behind the back lateral mm-hmm. raise in the scaption plane because it's going to open up the front and the back because it's somewhere in the middle. And so I personally think that the 45 degree ranges are the most underutilized ranges mm. because people traditionally just do the split squat and they do the lateral lunge, but they don't understand the 45. They just think it's a lunge matrix or a clock yeah. type exercise. You know what I mean? They just touch it and then they go yeah. out of it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the it's like the lost range. If it was like a movie, but it's like, but it's like, so yeah. yeah so you're saying forty five. For some reason, I was thinking in my head forty five, like forty five degrees of knee. But like you're saying, like if for straight ahead is zero, straight <laughs> yeah. lateral to the side is ninety. Forty five in that yes. clock. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was even just thinking too, like the lost range is also even like a ninety degree lateral, like because everyone always says just point the knee out and you lose like everything by doing that. You do. You literally you do. lose everything. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Um, all right. Cool. Wait. Well, hey, I think we're we. You well, know, we got through one thing. We'll have to come back and do the shoulder some other time. I had a lot of <laughs> yeah. stuff for you there. I haven't done much up. It's like man, all these shows. It's like lower body, which is great. You know, it's like. But I need to do an upper body one one of these days. That's more. Um, just just one last thing because I just did have this yeah. in my head is with the the you had mentioned the hip extension quality. Uh, people and again going back to running sprinting i love using sprinting as a screen watching like hip mm-hmm. extension quality and sprinting so someone who they maybe or maybe it's a straight leg raise test they lack they're, they're not doing great there then they're sprinting you can see they lack quality hip extension so mm-hmm. in a either forward or lateral lunge you mentioned using a box like they're doing a lateral lunge to a box or maybe a 45 to a box there where they're on like a six inch box like that's a good strategy to help give them room to restore the two inch box two, two inch. Inch. oh two inch yes okay two six 
That'd be a pretty big lateral lunge. Yeah, that's that's yeah. yeah, that's getting up there. You gotta get some stretch for that one. Exactly. Exactly. No, but like, you know, instead, so what I'll do is I want to get the maximal stretch. And this is why, like, it's not technically 45, but it is. Yeah. Is like the curtsy step down. Gotcha. Like to me, mm-hmm. that's kind of like that 45 degrees. That's a way where if people do a lateral lunge, it doesn't look good. That curtsy is is awesome because it's again that external rotation moment. Like you're walking behind yourself, or sorry, you have the leg coming behind the other foot, but that knee has to stay straight ahead. So you're creating that internal rotation. Um, but to go back, if I have somebody who doesn't have good hip extension or straight leg raise, I can't put them in a movement that requires a lot of hip extension at the start. Mm. So what I mean by that is if I don't have a lot of hip extension on the right leg, I can't expect to put that person's right leg back in a split squat and it looks good or it improves. Instead, I do something like I put the foot in front first because I'm flexing the hip, which opens up room Right, because in order to extend my hip, I need two things. I need the femur to be able to internally rotate, and then the pelvis to be able to move forward on that femur or nutate the sacrum. So, if I put the foot in front, I'm getting the femur to internally rotate, and then if I wanted to make it a hybrid, I could do something like a hingey split squat. So, I got my foot in front, and then I lean my torso forward. And then I get them to do like oscillations in a small movement. Yeah. Well, now I'm getting, you know what I mean? So I'm getting both at the same time. But for me, my rule of thumb is if I don't have hip extension, I'm going to put that person into hip flexion and then drive extension. So step up instead of a split squat or a front foot forward uh, split squat. Sense. Do you know what I mean? Or if I'm doing a lateral lunge, again, I'm putting them into deeper hip flexion. So that I can put their foot on a box. Alternatively, you could do a toes elevated position. Um, but toes elevation for me is more people who have varus. Yeah. Okay. Because I want the tibia to turn in. And then as I shift into that side, it's like my pelvis going deeper hip flexion, but it's also starting to tip forward. If that makes sense. So again, I'm getting that hingy squat so i need the femur then i need the the hip extent the sacrum um but if someone doesn't have hip extension first thing i'm going after gotcha i mean that to me that makes more sense too with like even just like starting with like iso holds like that idea like just starting with a lunge hold like you aren't you aren't start you're starting in flexion like you're starting at that base place you can work with exactly exactly opening up that range so that the tissues are stretching i mean it's not traditionally stretching but you know what i mean like it's it's just like i'm tearing things apart that's what i'm thinking about that thing is really jammed shut i'm trying to pry it open and i'm doing that by putting myself in a range i have access to that's why i'm talking about the base support it's like my base support is out to the side so i want to use that to be able to pry open front to back because i have access to that way yeah right Versus someone who's like a narrower structure, they have the space in front of them. So doing something like a split squat, iso hold, front to back, like that's going to be money for them. Mm. 
because they've got that room. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to blow open that lateral rectangle, if that makes sense. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. You got my mind turned. I'm thinking like ISO lunges, holding cables, pulling, you know, pulling different directions, all that stuff. Yeah. Try the pal, try, try like a pal off press, eight, um, split squat ISO hold. Yeah. And play around with if having the cable, so left foot forward, the cables beside your right side versus having the right foot forward cables beside the right side and seeing the difference in terms of what happens at your foot and what it biases. And you can be like, oh, this is creating external moment, but internally I got to create internal rotation. Okay. That's creating more femoral IR versus, hey, this is trying to pull me in. I've sorry, this is trying to pull me out. I've got to push in. You know what I mean? So it's it's really, it's really fascinating once you start playing around. Yeah. I kind of think too, like I, I do a lunge a lot where you try to pull down into it as you go. And my right my right leg forward sucks. And my yeah. right, my left leg forward's pretty good. But so it's like, I'll have to play around with that and see how I can pull down with the right leg and see which alignment like makes it feel easier to do so. So for you, try right foot forward, left foot back, narrow the stance front to back and have the cable. So so your right shoulders in line with the cable and you're pulling the cable towards midline. Okay. That is going to be really good for you. If if you have the, if you, you have a harder time with the right leg forward. Yeah, I, I'll try it. I'll try it today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, awesome. I, I was going to make a joke too, right before I get out of, um, get off the call was uh, like, you know, Joel Seidman's like the 90 degree guy. I was like, Alex, start for the 45 degree guy. And yeah, I think 45 it. degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let's start it. Let's start the revolution. Yeah. Or Thanos, one of the two. Everything. Yeah. 45, everything. Yeah. yeah or 90. Yeah. If no you, IR, no ER, just 45. Yeah. If you do anything but 45, you're going to get hurt. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Your knee's going to blow up if you do anything more than 45. <laughs> so well, yeah, I love it. Well, hey, Alex, thank you so much. It was, man, I got so many ideas between the lateral lunges, the cable things, uh, the stances. You have given me a lot to observe. I know I'll be listening back to our conversation too. I'll probably have a bunch more notes to take. So thank you so much for being on the call today. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joel. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, it's always a fun time. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you being here. If you enjoy the show, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. I'd absolutely appreciate it. And I will see you next week.